He is great. So we have the privilege this morning of diving into a new series. So we're diving into the book of Exodus, and we're breaking that up into two series. So we're going to start with this called Seas Parted from chapter 1 through chapter 15, taking a look over the next five weeks at at the deliverance of God as he rescues, as he redeems, as he, as he draws out, and, and uh, what it really is that he parted the seas. Then we're going to take a four-week break and take a look at, at just practically how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Then we're going to jump back into, for seven more weeks, the book of Exodus, and take a look at what it is to be a new people of God. So there's a remarkable thing. Prior to the Exodus, God had relationships only with individual people with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. But there was no such thing as a nation. There was no people of God. And when he pulls Israel out of the Red Sea, he gives birth to a nation for the first time. And there is a whole pattern for how do the people of God interact with a holy God. So we're going to take a look at that. But starting out the book of Exodus uh, this week, we're going to jump into this. It's fitting that we dwell on how great is our God. Say that once with me. Just How great is our God? He is a big, powerful, almighty God. And at some point in the early chapters of Exodus, you have to get a feel for that. For God is the only true God. The only sovereign, all-powerful, all-present, all-wise God. And he's on display showing his glory really to, to, to Egypt and then to the ends of the earth. And it's in every scene all the way through the deliverance of the parting of the Red Sea. It's not just this this epic event of the Old Testament. When the Nile turned to blood, the Nile God, the primary God of Egypt, fell down. And God showed that there is only one true, all-powerful God. When the second plague of the frogs jumped up on the land, a frog was representation of the goddess of reproduction in Egypt. And when all of the frogs then died, the goddess of reproduction falls over. And gnats and flies and boils and livestock all the way through, the gods of Egypt are toppled over in the plagues. And God displays that he is the only true all-powerful, all-wise God, that there is one God. But in the midst of all of that, if all we came away with out of the book of Exodus is that God is powerful and big, we get that. Who else can stump Egypt? Who else can take Pharaoh and all his chariots and all his armies and deliver a nation of slaves? God is big. But if all we get is God is big, will have missed the main theme of the whole book. Some background into the story. So Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. He's sold off into slavery, and he winds up in Egypt. And in Egypt, he grows in favor until he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And he's overseeing the, the grain and the food supply of Egypt before a famine comes. And so the famine comes, and now all of his brothers, Israel essentially, Jacob and and, and the 11 sons, they all migrate down into Egypt because they need food. And next thing you know, they run into Joseph, and, and the favor of God is poured out upon them. And the Jews begin to rise in prosperity and favor, and they multiply in the land. But what happens is that Joseph passes away. And all of his generation passes away. And after that, there's a Pharaoh who, who's 
concerned. And he simply says, look at how, look at how many of the Jews are in our midst. If we get attacked by an enemy and the Jews join them in force, they're going to come against us and we're going to be in trouble. And so he devised a slavery for the Jews that was brutal. In fact, the word in Scripture is ruthless. I want to just begin there in chapter 1 of the book of Exodus in verse 13 and 14. We read these words. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now you'll notice at the beginning of that short passage and at the end, it's, it's framed by the word ruthlessly. It's not just that they entered slavery. They entered a brutal form of slavery that was oppressive and ruthless. Now, not only did they enter into this slavery that was so ruthless, but this slavery was not just for a moment. It wasn't, it wasn't just for a day or, or a week or a month or a year. In fact, this slavery lasted somewhere in the ballpark of 300 years. We don't know exactly how long. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years, but slavery was a lion's share of that time frame. So around 300 years. So it's quite possible that your grandparents are born in slavery and die in slavery. And your parents are born in slavery and die in slavery. And you are born in slavery with no realistic hope other than the expectation that you would die in slavery. And there's something about the suffering of slavery that causes accusations about God to be lobbied at Him. It is easy in the midst of suffering and slavery when, when, when there is no deliverance for hundreds of years to say, God, what are you doing? God, why don't you stop this? God, God do, do, do you even see what's going on? God, do you, do you even hear my prayers? Are you listening? Do you know? Do you know what's happening here? Are you powerful enough to, to do something about it? Because if you're powerful enough to do something about it and you really care, then why aren't you doing something? Or God, do you even care what's going on? Now, where we can relate to this in some form is it doesn't take 300 years of slavery to enter our lives for us to lobby similar accusations. It can be as simple as cancer coming close into our home around those we love. It can be Alzheimer's, sickness of any sort. It can be divorce or losing a job or a financial, a financial loss that is significant. The next thing you know, we're saying, God, God, do you see what's going on? God, do you hear me? Because you're not really answering. God, God, do you care? Are, are you aware of what's going on? We can we can direct these same accusations at God. And if all we get about the early chapters of Exodus are that God is big and powerful, we'll miss 
we'll miss the main thrust of what God really wants us to hear. So we're going to turn to chapter 2 and read just a few words in verse 23 through 25. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now there are four verbs in that passage. Four action points of God's activity. God hears them. God remembers them. God sees them. And God knows them. And we need to pause here and and let those words sink into our soul. We worship an all-wise, all-powerful, everywhere-present God. But we also worship a God who hears us and remembers us and sees us and knows us. And this is crucial to grasp. When we say that God hears us, we need to let that sink in. Perhaps, perhaps you've been in a conversation with someone and you've thought to yourself, maybe even spoke it out loud. You're not, you're not hearing me. You're not listening to what I'm trying to say. I get the stereotype of a frustrated teenager looking back at parents saying, see, see you're not even listening. You're not even listening to me. We have a God who listens. We have a God who listens. When I go away from home without my family, it is simply a principle of life to come home with some kind of trinket or treats for everybody from being gone. It was easier when everybody was little. It gets a little trickier as they grow up. Although not that bad. If I'm at the airport, I'm not a go through the airport, pick up the I love New York little teddy bear that costs five times more than it should anywhere else. I'll skip the airport real easy and just stop at Safeway on my way home. I'm well aware that a root beer is a great blessing to one, a $100,000 grand bar for another, a Kit Kat for another, and a Reese's peanut butter cup for another. And for my bride, I have to be slightly more creative. But I bring home gifts to say I was thinking about you. I remembered you while I was gone. God is a God who remembers us. He hears us and he remembers us. His thoughts are not drifting away somewhere else. He is not distracted nor too busy. God hears us. God remembers us. God sees us. Every swim mate I was ever in in my entire life, I raced in towards the end. I lunged in towards the finish line to, to, to... finish line, pass the flags to touch the wall, and I'd immediately look over to see if mom and dad were watching. And the amazing thing in today's world especially is you can finish your dance recital, your major test, you can finish your wrestling match, your football game, no matter what the circumstances are in life, you can finish and look over to see if somebody's watching. They can be on their phone just doodling away. 
Maybe dad's on his phone. Maybe mom's talking to the lady next to her in the, blinker, in the bleachers. Maybe someone's just blinking. God wants us to know he never turns his back. He never blinks. He is never distracted. God sees us. He hears us. He remembers us. He sees us. Perhaps the most intimate of all of them is he knows us. That frustrating word which, you don't even get me. I remember years ago, I was a young buck pastor visiting an older couple. They lived in a trailer, and I went to spend some time with them. I shared that it was a trailer only to give you a feel, for it was a a relatively small space that we were gathered into. And I went in to visit. The TV was on. It was rather loud, and the TV didn't go off. In fact, there's kind of that awkward kind of moment. I didn't ask for the TV to go off, but as we sat down, I certainly kind of glanced over at it. I felt a pulse from her thinking, why don't we turn off the TV? He was not there whatsoever. He wanted the TV on. We sat down to visit, and as we visited, he lasted maybe 15 seconds. Before sitting in his chair, she in her chair, I was on the little love seat across. He had his arms folded, and he just started to nod off. He'd grunt every once in a while, just kind of a, and back down. But I'll never forget when with tears in her eyes, she looked across at me and said, that's, that's really all I get. He, uh, he doesn't even know me. And I'm not really sure he wants to. I was just a young buck. With all my heart, I wanted to say I'm sorry and just wrap her in a hug. She was married. But I don't know that I've ever met someone who felt more alone. It can really hurt to live in a place where you don't feel known. This passage comes to us in the middle of these early chapters of Exodus to remind us that we have a God who hears us and remembers us and sees us and a God who knows us. And it's really important to grasp, especially in the midst of slavery, especially in the midst of suffering, however we want to translate that into our lives. It would be very easy to, to, to live in a slavery that we, that we already read is, is brutal in its ways. And in that place, it's easy to start thinking, God, where are you? Do you even see what's going on? How come you're not listening? Because you don't seem to be answering. All of those accusations, God wants us to know that He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never turns His back. He's never distracted. He hears us. He remembers us. He sees us. He knows us. And that theme rattles throughout the story as it unfolds, even in these initial chapters. You see, when Joseph dies and all of his generation 
before slavery has started. It would be easy to think, oh, here we are in this foreign land and all of the patriarchs are gone. There's no one named Abraham, Isaac, or or, or Jacob, or any of the 12 tribes. None of the leaders are, are alive anymore on this earth. We read this in chapter 1, verse 7, into that context. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It's another way to say God was with them. He was hearing and remembering and seeing and knowing. He would not abandon His people. He was right there with them. And then along comes a Pharaoh who doesn't know Jacob, who doesn't know Joseph, who doesn't remember the favor of God through Israel. And he enacts slavery. And along comes this this brutal form of of slavery we read about earlier. Ruthlessly they made the people of Israel slaves. And in the midst of that, in verse 12, we read, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The more they were oppressed, the more brutal the slavery was the greater God's favor was with them. And they increased. Now, if you went back in time and talked to anyone, it would seem when the slavery was becoming more oppressive, and you said, while this slavery is becoming more oppressive, do you think God's favor is shining brighter? I think just about every human being would say, well, if his favor is shining brighter, I'd rather it shine in a different way, if you know what I mean. It didn't feel like his favor was there. It didn't look like his favor was there. But God, God injects the story with this truth because he wants us to know. God is powerful. God is big. God is wise. But God is a God who hears us. God is a God who remembers us. God is a God who sees us. God is a God who knows us. The story continues to unfold. And Pharaoh says, we we have to do something about these Hebrews. And so he instructs the midwives. If you have a girl born, let her live. But if you have a boy born, I want you to put it to death. And the midwives, they struggle with this. They, they, they're thinking, hey, we're on this earth to like embrace life, not to end it. And so they refuse Pharaoh's order. And they allow the, the Jewish boys to live. And we read this in verse 20, still in chapter 1. So God dwelt well with the, with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Over and over, we get the reminder, God's there. God sees what's going on. God's listening. God's aware. God's right there in the midst. God's in cancer. God's in Alzheimer's. God's in divorce. God's in heartbreak. God's in pain. God does not abandon us. He's there all throughout. Lo and behold, a young man and a young woman get pregnant. They had a son and a daughter already, but they have another boy. Well, Pharaoh had made up this edict. If the midwives aren't doing their job, all right, let the girls live and take the boys and chuck them into the Nile. This couple has a boy. They hide him. They keep him quiet for three months. But he had healthy lungs. He was getting tough to hide. So they put tar, pitch, 
around a basket. And they put them in the basket and they push them on down. You can immediately begin to, to fear and fret. What about alligators? What about hippos? What's, what's going on? How can you just throw them into the Nile? That's where the babies are supposed to be thrown. Miriam, his older sister, walks along in the thicket of the, of the Nile to see what's going on. And we read this in chapter 2, verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. It's as if into the middle of the story, you're scared, you're wondering what's going on. There's a baby floating down the Nile, and it just so happens. The daughter of Pharaoh makes her way to the river, and she sees the baby. She pulls him out, and in love calls him Moses. Now Miriam, Moses' older sister, comes on up there. Wow, what'd you find? A baby. She looks down. Well, you're a, you're a slave. Do you know of any women who would be in a season of milk who could come and nurse the baby for me? Miriam thinks, well, you know, I happen to know someone. And so she goes and gets her mom. Yokoved comes in. And Pharaoh's daughter continues the conversation in verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. This is like one of the greatest verses in all of Jewish storydom. Mom gets to take Moses home for a couple of years to nurse him and gets paid for it by Pharaoh's daughter. How do you get better than this? And it's just to so happen in the story to remind us God sees, God hears, God remembers, God knows. God has not left. In the midst of slavery, things can look awful. But God, God has not left. He is there in all of the ways. So Moses grows up and shortly after finds the truth that he is in fact Jewish. And when he finds that out, a, a dilemma ensues on an afternoon when he sees an Egyptian slave master beating a Jewish slave. And Moses steps in, and in the process, he kills the Egyptian slave master. But Pharaoh finds out. And so Pharaoh is going to kill Moses, and Moses runs away to Midian. And there, exhausted in the desert of Midian, he falls down at a well desperate for water. And it just so happens that that's the same well where the priest of Midian would send his seven daughters to water the camels and the flocks. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 16, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs with water to water their father's flock. So there they are, bad guys come, Moses gets to pull out his staff, he rescues, he's the hero, and next thing you know, he's at the priest's home. Just little nuggets in the story to say, God, God has not abandoned you. It might look like that, and it might feel like that. But God's not distracted. God hears you. God remembers you. God sees you. God knows you. This truth all the way through the story. So back to our Back to our verses in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Could we read that together aloud? 
And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You can take each of these words, just take God knew. Now, on the one hand, God is omniscient. God, God knows all things perfectly, profoundly. God is never confounded. God is never confused. God is never surprised. There is no news to God. God has never once seen something happen and go, ooh, didn't see that coming. God knows everything perfectly, comprehensively. He knows the future as much as he knows the past. He knows every detail. But the word here that God knows is, is more intimate than God knows from a distance. This is God gets us. God knows us. He knows our fears. He knows our doubts. He knows our struggles. He knows our scars. He knows our sins. No one here will ever confess to God. And God said, ooh, didn't know that. God knows us. He knows us. When I was a kid, I went through a season at like nine and ten years old of riding some mini bike motorcycle sort of things. It started with a three-wheeler that was not healthy for me. That's, I think, why they stopped making three-wheelers. It was just natural when you were going up on a turn on two wheels of the three to stick your leg out. And those big knobby tires were really good at sucking your leg under there. So it was a, it was a short-lived experiment in Levineland. And we got rid of the three-wheeler and we had a little Honda Trail 70, a little uh, mini bike that's like perfectly built for a 90-year-old or a 90-pound boy. And I jumped on that and I was ready to ride all over. And I remember my dad giving me a few instructions. First, you're not allowed to ride on the street. You could ride the street down to the park. If you want to ride down to the park, that's totally fine. But do not ride around on the streets. It's not even street legal. You can take it around the pond. You can goof around. But listen, no jumps, no dumb little things, okay? Be safe. So I had it about a week. And uh, across our pond was uh, two neighbors who had a chain-link fence dividing them. And the only thing special about that chain-link fence is there were no fences after that for quite a while. So you had like a 100-plus yards and then a chain-link fence and a 100-plus yards, which is begging someone to build a ramp and say, jump me, look at this space you've got. So, inspired by Evil Knievel in rocket ships going over the Grand Canyon, I'm like ready to go. And so, uh, you know... Hacksaw comes out, plywood comes out, wood comes out. I'm building a little ramp, everything perfectly. I'm sure it was engineered just right to get over the bridge. I practiced on it for a while, thinking to myself as I went off it, I've got the chain link fence covered. I'm going high enough. You see where this is going? So I take the ramp across the pond. I line it out. It's like five feet away from the chain link fence. I remember even lying on the ground, like eyeing it. Yep. That goes right over. That's the line. That's what I needed. So I souped the engine up as fast as I could. I'm sure it topped out at about 25. I got that thing going. I hit the ramp. I'm up, 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 up until the back wheel hits the top of that chain link fence. And I go just straight down into the ground and face plant. And it wasn't very pretty. It didn't feel very good. I was fortunately okay. 
my little mini bike, the handlebar was cranked and bent so far back it was not drivable. I had to walk the thing all the way home. I put it into the garage and had the masterful plan of ignoring it, pretending the whole thing didn't happen. Somehow, miraculously, it would go away. Other than it didn't. And I remember, you know, I I chose not to tell my dad. And I I remember within that week, there were events. Like my dad would get the ice cream out and serve ice cream. And ice cream would come out, and it would seem like everyone else would get a bigger scoop than I would. And I'd think, he knows. Until I remember my dad, about a week after, uh, saying, hey, how's that mini bike going? And I was like, it's going awesome. That's how it's going. He goes, I want to see you ride it. Let's go. I'm like, well, we don't have to do it now. That's what I'm thinking. And so we walk from our kitchen area. We're going, we had a, a spiral staircase. So we're walking down the spiral staircase to the basement. And as we get to the basement, there's only about 20 feet left down a narrow hallway to a little mudroom and then the garage. And we're walking down that 20 feet. And I'm a nine-year-old boy thinking really fast, like, like, oh. My dad got to the door and I said, hey, dad. Um, so before we go out, I... Uh, I know you said uh, not to do jumps and stuff, and, um, and I did it anyway. And uh, the bike's ruined. You can't, even, you can't even ride it. The handlebars bent way back, and I'm really sorry. I... He came back. He said, I know. It's already fixed, you know. And I look up. So listen, um, I told you not to do jumps and be crazy because I don't want you getting hurt, all right? And I go out to the garage and I look and it looks brand new. The whole thing is cleaned up and fixed. He said, listen, don't hurt yourself, all right? Go have fun. And he walked back inside. Now, when we read that God knows us, This isn't in the context of of somehow being afraid and he's distant and he's looking over. This is saying God, God hears us. He hears your thoughts. He hears your struggles. He hears your prayers. Every single one. You have never once ushered a word that he has not heard. And he remembers. He's thinking about us all the time. And he sees us. He sees every detail. He knows, he knows in that sense everything about us. He is watching us lovingly in the midst of everything, even the suffering, all aspects of our life. And he knows us. He gets us. He knows our fears. He knows our doubts. He knows our anxiety. He knows our depression. He knows, he knows our sins. You're never going to say, hey, dad, I, I, I bent the handlebars. I, I'm, he knows you bent the handlebar. He not only knows what you and I have done, he knows what's been to, uh, done to us. No one in here has scars from abuse, from alcoholism, from all kinds of things that fall upon us as children or all the way into adulthood. No one in here has a scar that God does not know of. God knows you. 
God knows me. This is a truth spelled beautifully throughout Scripture in different places. We're not going to go to a lot, but there are two psalms that are favorites that I'd like to just glance at. One is Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God, you, you haven't just looked at me. You've searched for me. You draw me in, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down. You know when I get up. You know my thoughts before they're my thoughts. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Again, you, you search me out. You know when I lie down. You, you know when I get up. You know, you know everything about me. You know words that I'm going to say before I even think of the words, before they're even on my tongue. Verse 5 and 6, You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is reflecting. and saying, God, God, God you hear me. God, you remember me. You, you see me. You know me. You know when I get up. You know when I lie down. You hem me in. You're all around me. You, you're, you're caring about every detail of my life. You know words before they're on my tongue, thoughts before they're in my mind. And I, I can't even handle this. I'd keep writing about it, but God, my words are like profanity compared to your glory. I can't, I can't even handle this truth. You are God Almighty, all-powerful, all-wise, everywhere present. You are the Lord of hosts, and you care about me. You care about me. That's, that's more than I can handle, God. I can't even write anymore. Psalm 56, verse 8, just one verse. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I don't know when the last night you tossed and turned in sleep was. I don't know when the last time stress got its better part and you didn't sleep very well at all. But there's a sense in which you could talk to God in the morning. He'd say, yeah. I saw you toss and turn 38 times. 38 and a half if you count the little leg twist. God is there watching everything and he knows. He's with us in the midst of it. In fact, he collects every tear we've ever cried in a bottle. Every tear when we were a baby and we were hungry or needed a diaper change. Every tear when we're when we're lonely or facing heartbreak or rejection, every tear we're curled up in a ball wondering what we did wrong, every tear in all of life, God's been collecting in a bottle. So someday when we get to heaven, He can show us a, a vase of sorts, a bottle 
filled with our tears to remind us we were not once alone. He was with us in every one. He wants us to know in the midst of slavery, and slavery is a brutal thing. This world has lots of brutal things. But in the midst of that slavery, He wants us to know He hears us. He remembers us. He sees us. He knows us. He collects every tear to hold them, to show us just how much He loves us. Not only does He collect the tears, then He writes about it in His journal. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God has written of you. He has written of me in his journal. He is paying attention to us all the time. Back to Exodus chapter 2. Would you read those verses with me just one more time? And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There's a pretty intimate, comforting, wonderful truth God has for you and me this morning that we could absorb inside of us the fact that God never blinks, God never turns his back. God is there. And especially, especially if we are going through some aspect of suffering, if there is some fabric of slavery that is, is somehow attaching into our lives, some aspect of suffering in this world where it doesn't feel like it, and there's something in our nature that wants to lob the accusations, God, do you care? Do you see? Do you hear me? Where are you? Why don't you do something? In the midst of all of that, God wants us to know He's right there with us. He's never left, leaving us, never left us, never going to forsake us. He is right there with us. Uh, a movie clip, I, I, I didn't put it up there because it's not that great of a movie. If you like Clint Eastwood, you know it's as good as it gets. But Clint Eastwood was a thief and... Uh, in the midst of his thievery, he saw some bad things with the president, and so next thing you know, he's under investigation. And his daughter, in this movie called Absolute Power, it's an old movie, but in this movie, his daughter is the district attorney. So the investigator gets her involved in trying to find him. And in the midst of trying to find him, she's recounting some hurt because he has never been there. He and, his, he and her mom were divorced when she was just a kid, and he missed every significant event of her life. And in the midst of the investigation, they find this safe house. And the investigator says, would you go with me to this safe house to try and find some evidence? And she walks into the safe house, and she is immediately stopped in her tracks. As she looks around the living room, and picture after picture after picture, she sees he was at every single event of her life. And she walks to each one. When I was in fifth grade, and I got that medal in track, I didn't think my dad was there. All the way to when I passed my bar exam, I, I didn't think my dad was there. It might not feel or seem like God is with us sometimes, but you have to trust in this anchor point. Even though you might not feel him, even though you might not see him, 
even though all the circumstances around you look like oppression, God is with you. He hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows. The band is going to come back out and they're going to lead us in one last song. The song is called Never Once, and even in the chorus of the song, it says, Never once did I ever walk alone. You are faithful, you are faithful. It just speaks to the faithfulness of God. Quite possibly, as we sing this in worship, there are those who are Christians, who have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. And in this time, it's just a comforting reminder. God is with us, and that's a good thing to be reminded of now and then. It's also possible that there's non-Christians. You've never entered into that type of intimate relationship with God before. And you hear this. You think, I, I want a God who hears me. I want a God who remembers me. I, I, I want a God who sees me and who knows me. I've just never known that. Perhaps today is the day to surrender your life to Christ and to enter in. There is an invitation in this to a relationship with him. Let's stand as we sing together and then we'll close. Never once 
It is a pretty awesome thing to be speechless, to realize God is better than we have ever even imagined. He's just that glorious. Perhaps this is a good day to be renewed in the comfort that God is always with us as a Christian. Again, if you have never surrendered your life to Christ and you you hear an invitation of this, something you want, please don't leave without talking to us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to get you a Bible and start you in your journey. We always open up the altar here for prayer time, and you're welcome to come and have a quiet time with the Lord and lay burdens down. If you'd like to have someone pray with you, there's a prayer team. Just give a glance towards towards one of them, and they would be glad to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we, we gaze at you and we smile. You are a better father. You are more gracious and loving than we can grasp. Thank you for sending your son. Jesus, Out of love for the Father, out of love for us, you gave up your life. Thank you. Holy Spirit, you bring to us the Father and the Son, and you are right here with us, around us, in us, and we give you praise. Thank you. I pray that you would help us to know, help us to believe, and help us to feel just how close you are. In the precious and saving and glorious name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said together, amen and amen. God be with you.